Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. The answer is yes. It only makes sense to take the largest market for energy storage in the world, second largest market for electric vehicles, and the largest market for consumer electronics, and have a domestic supply chain of the critical material of batteries in this country. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warrior. Today, I just want to say thank you for swinging by and giving us the only non-renewable resource you've got. That's your time. My guess is that you're here because you are an infinite learner like the rest of us. You are looking to better understand what's happening on the front lines of the clean energy transition. Well, my friend, you are in the right place. Over the last 10 plus years, I have been chronicling informally and now formally the conversations that I engage in with leaders throughout the energy landscape, primarily focused on clean energy, and that's a big focus here for us on Suncast. The solar module industry, the inverters, all the accoutrements that allow us to deploy gigawatts, and as our friend Matt Campbell at TerraBase says, terawatts now of solar projects, have a lot to contribute to the decarbonization of our grid. But most experts agree that unless we can answer the storage problem, we won't get to a fully decarbonized grid and we won't be able to deploy fully renewables-based electricity in the United States or anywhere else. One of the companies that is doing a great deal towards freeing our grid from fossil fuels by storing those clean electrons and deploying them as necessary. It's a company called Fluence. Back in September, I had the opportunity to sit down with John Zaransic, the president of the Americas for Fluence. We had a, ra- a re- really interesting conversation about the state of the energy storage markets. You can find the links for that. I would encourage you to go listen to it as well as kind of a primer on how John thinks about the world. I think it was one of the best interviews that we did back in um, in Las Vegas at RE+. But not only did I get a chance to get an exclusive coverage of John's keynote recently at Intersolar, but I spent some time with him in the Fluence booth to hear his thoughts on domestic battery manufacturing. You see, we've heard lots of announcements of electric vehicles and solar panels and even uh, other hardware related to the solar energy sector nearshoring or becoming domestic manufacturing opportunities here at home in the United States. Batteries is a whole other ball of wax, so to speak, (laughs) pack of wax, uh, lots of different mediums. John is leading one of the companies that is the first to actually put a flag in the sand and say, we are building a manufacturing plant here in the United States for large-scale energy storage manufacturing. That company, Fluence, is a publicly traded company that spun out of a joint venture between AES and Siemens right here in the United States. 
and was a pioneer for years in battery storage during their time at AES. I've had Kiran Karamaswamy on the show and many others, Merrick Kubik and others from Fluence, talking about the innovations they brought to market. So I think it makes sense to listen in as John Zrenzik provides his keynote from Intersolar about the nature of domestic battery manufacturing, what we have to look forward to, whether or not we can actually rely on the battery manufacturers to come over and do domestic manufacturing at scale the way we see solar panel manufacturers. And is Fluence really going to do it? So he gets into that, not just on the stage, but also in a one-on-one interview I performed with John at the Fluence booth after his keynote. Hope you enjoy these kinds of conversations. We've got more than 650 of them here on Suncast. Leaders like John on the front lines of the clean energy transition. Lean in and get your fill and then go out and do something. Because ultimately that's how the energy grid will transition. Because we, as doers, get things done. We'll be talking about it here on Suncast. Be watching what you're doing. Let us know if you want to come on the show and tell your story. In the meantime, let's tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. This is an exclusive from Intersolar 2024 with John Sarancic. If you, like me, have been wondering, are we really going to see battery manufacturing coming to the U.S.? Is domestic content going to happen the way that we've seen solar module manufacturing come to fruition. Factory announcements abound. The battery industry, as has been the case, is often following in the footsteps of the solar module sector, and no one has been a stronger proponent and advocate for U.S. domestic content than Fluence, one of our local partners. I am here with John Saransic, president of Fluence Americas. We're going to talk specifically about all the questions that I'm sure you have related to how the battery industry is maturing and whether or not domestic content is a reality. I think that's the biggest question, John, as we jump into this is, can the U.S. compete with battery manufacturing in uh, 2024 and beyond? Yeah, and I I guess I'm going to give you the simple answer of yes. So, uh, you know, the first answer is yes. We're going to start delivering batteries into domestically produced batteries into the world and start to put them projects live at the end of 24 and into the beginning of 2025. So we're very excited about that. We've partnered with some suppliers that have existing facilities and they're expanding those facilities so that we can start to tap into the enormous demand that exists in the United States and the related countries around here. So the answer is yes. It only makes sense to take the largest market for energy storage in the world, second largest market for electric vehicles, and the largest market for consumer electronics, and have a domestic supply chain of the critical material of batteries in this country. So we'll talk a bit about the requirements in order to have domestic content as a reality. In in broad strokes, it's really supply chain and policy. Let's unpack supply chain first. Give us like a state of the state of the union for supply chain in 2024 that's going to empower this domestic move. So there's a couple of pieces to the supply chain. Um, Today, most of the batteries in the world are produced in Asia. Uh, Most of the supply chain runs through Asia, but a lot of the critical materials are not native there. So some of these critical materials are already in the Americas. A lot of the lithium that was mined in the original projects we did, 2009, 2010, even all the way back, they were projects where the lithium was mined in Chile, was sent to Asia, made into cells, came back through the U.S. to make into a system and arrived back in Chile in the form of an energy storage system. So the, the minerals are there. The factory capability is starting to be built up in the United States. And the other thing that companies like us are doing is 
we're making investments in how do you put the packs together? How do you assemble the whole system so we can bring that manufacturing to the United right. States as well? So we've already taken some of those steps in terms of assembly. We can do assembly in the United States. We're now trying to bring the battery cell manufacturing to the United States. And the key is not just bringing it, but then ramping it up massively. Yeah. So there's some that exist. We've secured that supply. We'll be delivering it to our partners. Um, and then we're working with those companies to ramp up that capability so we can really support this market fully. Yeah. And I mentioned policy, as has been the case for solar panel manufacturing. It is deeply, uh, it is deeply moved by policy and guidance from Treasury. We have now guidance for the solar panel or domestic content rules. Could you give us an update on Treasury guidance and what's it going to take to get us not to the red zone, but across the goal line on this. Yeah, I think that's a, an apt metaphor as we go into this season of, of NFL playoffs. I think what we've seen is this major policy shift has kind of gotten us 95 yards down the field, and now we need to put it into the goal, uh, across the goal line. And, and really, there's a couple things. How exactly are we counting domestic content? So there's a bit of a math question, exactly what qualifies, exactly how is it counted, so that the people that are financing these projects can go forward with confidence to say, I know exactly what this investment tax credit bonus credit is going to be. I know how to put it into my financials. There's a lot of companies that we're working with that are taking a view on that. And we're offering, making offers, and we're trying to certify that this will work. Uh, we have a plan that works in many different scenarios, uh, but there's still uncertainty. And that uncertainty is a difficult thing for large capital projects. Yeah. The less uncertainty there is, the faster funds flow, the more we create U.S. jobs, the faster we accelerate the industry, which is the intent of the legislation. So the legislation was landmark. It, it did the things that we wanted to do, supported in a bipartisan way. Um, now we just need to have those final details of the rules so that everybody knows exactly how it's going to roll out. Yeah. Is there anything that routinely comes up in customer meetings, in trade shows that you all are attending, that are the common questions folks have around those rules or around the way that supply chain is going to support this domestic rollout that you'd like to clarify? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things we get a lot of questions on is exactly what are you doing? What pieces are you talking about domestic? So we are going to produce a battery cell in the United States. We're going to take and put that into a battery module in the United States. We're going to take and integrate that into an enclosure in the United States. We're going to have battery software that's originated out of Europe and the Americas. So we, we get around lots of concerns that people have about supply chain disruption from shipping. I mean, it's been COVID, then it's been weather. Now it's terrorism, it's wars. Yep. So we understand that the supply chain is fragile in a lot of places. And when it's localized to just one part of the world, yeah. the rest of the part of the world have the demand. We need to do things to diversify that. Yeah. Not, not just for this domestic content policy, but just to realize the scale of ambition that everybody's trying to do in renewables. Yeah. We need to have production in different parts of the world so that we we can load balance around these natural tragedies or man-made tragedies, wh yeah. whatever they are. So those are a couple of the questions that come up. I think um, we've shown the plan of what we're doing. We're rolling out a new product that it's getting certified. It's getting fire tested. Uh, you know, so we're, we're showing people all of those concrete pieces yeah. that give them, uh, you know, firm certainty that we're going to deliver a working product consistent with what Fluence has done in the past, a next generation that's taking advantage of the advances in technology. I wanted to ask a, maybe a layer deeper on the landscape for manufacturing. There is, you know, as far as I can tell, there's virtually no domestic battery manufacturing. When we talked back in the fall of 23, Fluence is the first to announce that you want to come to the U.S. and create manufacturing. Could you give us a sense of the competitive landscape that is beginning to 
to coalesce. You know, it's, it's one thing for, let's take panel manufacturing as an example. It's one thing to have first solar and maybe one or two others. But once we get this coalescing around five or 10, the industry starts to take it seriously. When do we see that happening with regards to battery domestic manufacturing beyond Fluence being the flagship announcement? Yeah, I think, you know, we've seen a flurry of announcements of battery factories. And I think when this first came out, that seemed to be aimed at 2025. Yeah. I think it's more looking like 2026. And, and yeah. we were meeting with some potential battery supply partners last night where it's now looking like 2027. So yeah. I think there's two things that are hitting the environment. One is there's been a slack of demand coming out of China and others in the EVs. So, so right now there's a bit of an oversupply in the industry. Right. And so that whenever you're in a period of oversupply, battery vendors looking and saying, do I really want to invest the capital now to expand right. my capacity? I think that's a, a period of uncertainty. Um, and then we've also seen, you know, people just saying, how fast do I actually need to bring this? Right. How complicated is it to bring it to the United States? And some of these rules decisions that we were talking about earlier um, also impact that. Yeah. If I'm not entirely certain of what the rules are going to be, do I wait a little bit longer to get clear, uh, certainty before I break ground on that next factory? Yeah. But our expectation is, given the size of the U.S. market for electric vehicles and for energy storage, there will be the big players here eventually. And, yeah. I, and I think all of them have announced plans in one form or another. When does it truly get competitive for domestic content? My guess is it's probably really 2027, yeah. something like that. But in the interim, companies like ours and others will begin to move forward and we'll show you that a yeah. quality domestic product can be produced here. We can deploy it. We can work through all of these rules issues and start to take advantage of these bonus credits to yeah. really drive the scale of the industry. You mentioned quality domestic product. And also, as you were talking about the things that you have to do to ensure that that quality product can be available, there's fire testing. I know that you guys are really pushing the limits on what UL asks for and going above and beyond to ensure the safety of the product. Can you talk about the nature of fire testing you guys are engaging in and maybe it's relative importance to the industry? I mean, who doesn't like to set things on fire, right? I, <laughs> as a kid, you always wanted your mom to let you set more things on fire. So maybe I've grown up to that. But no, I, in all seriousness, uh, you know, we've been deploying batteries for 15 years. We've seen what you need to do to develop a safe system. Yeah. We've been through some events. I think anybody that's done anything at scale has been through some events. And the main thing is you have to learn from those events as yeah. we're maturing the industry. And one thing that we learned is, hey, we need to test these beyond the carefully controlled situations that you find in a lab. It's one thing to go through a certification test. I think that is a, a step, a good step of the industry. We didn't even have that at the beginning right. at all. And so I think those are good. But we want to take and say, hey, what if, what if it goes beyond that? What if, it, what if it spreads beyond that? Do we have other layers of safety that help make this a small event, something that isn't dangerous to, to people's lives? Yeah. You know, the people immediately uh, responding to the event, but also the people in the community. So we do a lot of burn testing. We have a facility in South Carolina. We invite um, regulators, customers to come with us and see the burn testing. They can see themselves, hey, it's not just one layer of safety. It's multiple layers of safety so that right. we ensure in an event that might be somewhat out of control, it isn't really out of control. Right. We, we exactly. know what the layers are, yeah. the isolation that's going to take it down, make it a small event. And then like any other kind of failure, we have a small failure, we contain it, we keep people safe, and we replace it. And so yeah. we've worked on not just how to control it, what happens in the event, what emissions come out so we know exactly what to do, yep. but then how do we rapidly restore that system? I think those are the keys to 
really continuing to grow the market. Yeah. Well, Fluence has continually created a sense of consumer confidence and the ability to not only deliver on time, but to deliver technologically advanced solutions. Your transmission product was a big success last year. Congratulations as a publicly traded company. You also achieved profitability, which is another major milestone as, as the leader of the business. And you reached 20 gigawatt hours of scale. So 2023 was a big year. I'd like to know how you plan to top it in 2024. <laughs> well, we're going to top the 20 gigawatt hours and keep going. So I think one of the keys that we've seen for a long time is this is an industry that to really have the transformative impact that we want to have and that I think others want to have, you got to get to scale. And so you have to set up the supply chain. You have to have quality people. They have to be deeply experienced. And so we've just keep going on that front. Yeah. What I'm excited about in 2024 is we are bringing out our next product. So it's a Gridstack Pro. Um, a more dense product, easier to install, easier to manage, lower costs to, to operate. So that's a big event. And we'll start manufacturing these domestic modules in the United yeah. States. So we will be shipping some very uh, new things that, that move the industry ahead again yeah. um, on the domestic content front and then just generally technology innovation. So yeah. I'm expecting this to be another big year. Absolutely. For Gridstack Pro, who's the Who's the target audience in 24 for that product? How are you expanding on their, your, your customer base or amplifying what they get from Fluence? Yeah, I think it continues to be, you know, utility scale storage. Okay. So today, most of our business is either directly with utilities or with large power producers that are building, you know, fairly large facilities, 100 megawatt, 200 megawatt. I think one of the things we're starting to see is this 100 to 200 megawatt four-hour systems becoming kind of a standard for a large-scale system. And then people are looking at doing multiple phases of that and saying, oh, there's a phase B, a phase C, a phase D. This might ultimately be a gigawatt system. We're going to do it in a couple stages. And so what that will benefit is it will make those projects more cost-effective. It will be more um, efficient on the use of land. It will be more efficient on the use of auxiliary power to support it. And just an overall advance in the product space. Well, 2024, I'm excited to see all of the dreams and ambitions, not just of Fluence, but the developers who put this technology to work for your customers come to fruition. I'm here with John Saranzik, the president of the Americas for Fluence. And you, if you didn't have an insight into how the domestic battery manufacturing market is going to roll out, are now more well-informed. Hey, if you're looking for a way to maximize the ROI for your next utility project, I would like to point you to SunGrow's new SG4400 modular inverter. This new innovative solution will reduce capital and operating expenses because it arrives already on a skid with a step-up transformer. It's built using four 1100KW modules so that if one of them fails, well, the other three keep powering right on through as the DC and AC protection are completely separate between the modules. You can learn more about this fantastic new product and more at mysuncast.com forward slash sungrow. Even before we started seeing things like bonus credits and community development zones and other things, we were seeing a lot of challenges in the supply chain, particularly as we start to scale up energy storage from relatively small projects a few a year to large-scale, ongoing portfolios of development that need certainty around them. There's a lot of capital being invested in sites, interconnections, land development, everything to make these projects go. And we saw lots of disruption over the last few years. COVID itself, huge disruption. We had challenges getting things 
into and out of Asia and, and began to realize how heavily dependent in the battery uh, world we were on production in just a few locations. Factory shutdowns adding weeks, months, timelines. As soon as we got factories back up, we started to see weeks and months of congestion at ports. Um, ships out to the horizon at the Long Beach and LA ports, um, where even if you got them into the ports, often you couldn't get them out of the ports. And so we saw huge delays there. These are things that just add to project timelines, add to the carrying costs of projects, add to basically the risk around all of these things. Um, we've seen forced labor uh, issues in regulatory, uh, disrupt supply coming from overseas. Uh, we've seen now an increasing amount of geopolitical tensions uh, in the form of a Ukrainian war, the form of issues related to China-U.S. relationships, and in addition to those and natural disasters, you know, now just this week we're reviewing how do we ship and, and move around terrorism in, in the Middle East and, and shooting out into the, you know, the surrounding sea area. So it's very clear, even apart from any incentives, that we have challenges as we scale this industry to making sure that the products we need are going to show up where and when we need them to be able to drive the projects that we have forward, whether that going forward meets a tax equity timeline, meets a financing timeline, meets a, a critical grid need timeline. We see all of these challenges continuing to increase for getting projects online when and where we need them to get. Um, and we started reacting to that a few years ago, even ahead of these in in incentives, in saying, hey, we need to have a more diversified approach to supply chain. Having all of the battery business coming from just one part of the world probably isn't what's going to support the future that we need. In the United States, we have the largest market for energy storage on the grid in the world. We have the second largest market for electric transportation. We have the largest market for consumer electronics. There's lots of demand in this market for batteries and the supporting equipment around batteries. It makes sense to have a portion of the supply chain much closer to the United States. And then why else should we care about this? On the kind of opportunity side, you know, shortening the project cycle, allowing us to get projects in the ground faster, allowing us to have a lower amount of developmental cash sitting around, you know, where, where we have things today, Often we're having to put large deposits down to get supplies guaranteed that they'll get at a certain time frame. And a lot of that is consumed just in the shipping cycle and getting things from overseas, large heavy goods from overseas to where we need them to be. If we can shorten that cycle, it makes everyone more capital efficient, more profitable. Um, we have these bonus tax credits now that have been issued under the Inflation Reduction Act. We have greater certainty of supply in, in avoiding some of these disruptions that I was just talking about, whether it's man-made disruptions of terrorism and war and, and political issues, or whether it's natural issues uh, of weather uh, disruptions and, and other events like that. Um, and then just looking at where we can put these and getting them tied together more closely, trying to improve the overall return on investment, whether it's a solar and storage facility, a standalone storage facility, or whatnot. So that's why we should care about a U.S. supply chain. As we move to greater and greater scale in the industry, you know, we need to make sure we have a greater and greater scale supply chain that's there, certainly, or we're just going to add cost into this. We're going to add risk premiums. We're going to add time premiums. We're going to add lots of, of trouble chasing each other to get things done when and where we need them to get done. Today, if you have a good site with a good project where you have an interconnection and you have a market that's ready to receive it, which we have a lot of that for storage, the last thing we need is to stump, stump our, stub our toe 
not being able to get the product that we need where we need it. So this is why we should care about a supply chain. It's really one of the key things to scaling this up. And we've been thinking about this for a long time because we've gone from doing projects at the one megawatt scale to 10 megawatt scale to 100 megawatt scale. And today our average project affluence that we're doing with our customers is probably more on the order of 200 megawatts, four hours. So you're getting to gigawatt hour scale single projects. That's a lot of material and equipment to bring in, especially if all of it has to come from far away. So that's why we should care about this. And this is kind of why we're thinking about it, why we're framing it. And we started thinking about how do we diversify that and deal with some of these supply chain um, issues even before we saw the IRA come about. The reality is that most of the battery manufacturing capacity exists in China and um, the rest of Southeast Asia. Um, even places that originally were producing batteries have moved a lot of that to China. That's where the main scale-up has been. There's very little in Europe and the United States. So the physical reality today of the manufacturing base is it mostly exists in China. And so the key question is, we have a demand here. We have a reason to diversify the supply chain, but is it realistic to think that we're really going to see this expand and broaden beyond this concentrated market where natural resources are already flowing into China, there's an industrial manufacturing base that's there, it knows what it's doing, scaled factories, continued investment, are we really going to see that occur in other parts of the world? And the other thing that we're seeing, uh, you know, to build on that is lots of announcements of potential changes, right? So right after the Inflation Reduction Act, we saw a number of companies come out and either announce that they were going to build factories in the United States, or they announced partnerships between electric vehicle companies and battery manufacturers to do partnerships with, with things in the United States. However, to date, most of those haven't been built, right? Here we are, in 2024, looking back to 2022 when the Inflation Reduction Act was passed, we haven't really seen those been built. You know, we've seen a lot of announcements. We've seen a lot of potential capital being committed to these things. We've seen some initial groundbreaking, but we're still in this period of uncertainty. And a couple of things are hitting that period of uncertainty. One, generally, electric vehicle demand is down. It's down dramatically in China. And that's having uh, an impact on the com consumption of batteries. And so we have a glut of batteries right now, primarily coming out of China. So at the same time that people are announcing large commitments to new factories and thinking about that as a multi-year commitment to build it and then a multi-year commitment to supply out of that factory, the existing factories are running at much lower production levels than they have in a long time. And so that's a, an issue. Typically in the past, the way battery vendors have dealt with this is to continue to move forward with these plans for the development of new factories, but push them out into the future. And so announced plans for 2025, 2026, 2027 might become 2027, 2028, 2029. We don't know. So that's one uncertainty that we're dealing with here. That's all related to the slacking demand. And in the same environment, we're seeing higher cost of capital generally in the world. So as battery vendors are looking at the kind of capital that it takes to build new factories, limited amounts of certainty on the demand, and exactly when it hits, um, some limited sense of what these rules actually are to qualify for domestic content, they're also being faced with higher capital costs generally in the world. There's capital available to do these things. It's just coming at a higher rate than it was in the past because of the uncertainties in the economy and inflation generally. So we have this map of huge opportunity reason to do this, huge potentially announced plans for expansion to a U.S. domestic supply chain, 
but a period of uncertainty that we find ourselves in. That's a tricky environment to navigate when you're developing projects that are multiple years in the future and trying to sure, ensure that you have a certain supply to deliver a certain project to a certain contract obligation. So I'm here to say we've taken steps to be able to deliver domestic content. Um, we announced this program a few months ago. Uh, we have a relationship that we've established with one of the existing battery factories, one of the few existing battery factories in the United States. It's being refurbished to go from producing vehicle batteries, electric vehicle batteries, to producing batteries for the grid services. We will take the output of that factory in Tennessee and do U.S. cell production. So when we think about what qualifies for U.S. domestic content, one of the quickest paths and cleanest paths to getting U.S. content is having a U.S. produced battery cell. We will take that and put it into a U.S. produced battery module. Um, we started this investment some time ago. Uh, we've built a line in Utah. We're expanding a production facility that we have in Utah to go to building Fluence-made modules. Um, and those modules will have controls and battery management systems that come from Europe and America. So U.S.-made cell put into a U.S.-made module integrated into an enclosure in the United States with U.S. and European-based controls shipped to a product. Uh, and we will start delivering those two projects in 2025, the beginning of 2025. So that's where we're moving. That's what we're doing right now. Talk a little bit about how we're doing that. I mean, part of how we're doing that is we started this even before the Inflation Reduction Act incentives started to come about. And we did it because of the things that I was talking about on slide one. We already saw that just having a single source of supply far overseas was not gonna live up to the promises of what we need to do with energy storage for the energy transition and for what we need for the grids. We see continued retirement of capacity in most of the states, even where they have done a lot with energy storage, they're continuing to see a need and a gap for capacity and firm power in markets because of the retirement of thermal plants and essentially because we haven't seen as much controllable load show up. Um, as we expected to do. So we're seeing the demand for energy storage continue to increase. We're seeing the adoption of electric vehicles continue to increase. And so we think these are underlying fundamental demand drivers. And we wanted to bring this whole supply chain closer to that demand. And those are the steps that we began to take. So we've built this integrated supply chain. I mentioned already, we'll bring uh, materials into the United States. We have a factory in Tennessee that will produce the battery cells in volume. Um, we will begin getting uh, the initial production runs of those cells later this year. Uh, we'll start producing them into packs in Utah. Um, and we have a test and development center that we have you know, for certifying these devices, both in the United States and in Europe. Uh, we do extensive burn testing of these devices so we can make sure that we don't get sidetracked in permitting or with local community issues. We make sure we really understand what happens when these are in a live event so we can keep people safe we can keep the project running, and if we do have any sort of event, we can rapidly replace it. But this is part of building for the future, really thinking about the at-scale energy storage vision of the future, where we really see this being a fundamental part of the electric infrastructure, not just in California, not just in Arizona, not just in ERCOT, but really everywhere across the United States, and then potentially supplying out of the United States to other countries. So we've been doing a lot in Canada lately, we're doing more and more in Chile, um, been there for, for over a decade, and we're starting to see Mexico, the Caribbean, and other countries begin to adopt energy storage as well. So 
We continue to see new markets opening up, project sizes growing, uh, even more interest in doing this uh, from companies that have traditionally been either thermal developers or, or solar developers um, or other renewable developers. So we don't see any future scenario in which the demand shrinks. And what we're really trying to do is smooth out the path from here to there so that we make this as simple as possible. We make the capital cycle efficient. We build products that are bankable, people can invest in, and we make it work for the projects. So the other thing that we announced the last few months is a, a new product line that will support this domestic content. We call it GridStack Pro. This builds on the GridStack line of projects that we've been delivering for several years. It's a slightly larger enclosure. It's simpler to install. It's more dense, um, so it's more efficient on the use of land. This will be able to be supplied with either a U.S. supplied battery or a foreign supplied battery. Um, we will have BMS uh, and software in this that is non-Chinese uh, related content. So we can get around concerns and issues people have on cybersecurity or other concerns uh, of intervention or, or grid security issues. Um, we have U.S. manufactured inverter options. We can configure this to however you like it. And given this flexibility and configuration, what we expect to happen is we'll see the price of foreign batteries, the price of domestically produced batteries move up and down. We're seeing a lot of that happen now. We believe this allows us to work with you as potential customers and people that are deploying these systems, whether into a utility, into a commercial application, but to balance the best performance, the best safety, the best life, and the best price that makes the most sense for your project and for your customers as we go forward. That's the supply chain that we're working to build. We have both the U.S content supply chain, and we also operate in countries around the world, so we have a non-U.S. content supplied uh, supply chain as well. So this is the product that will feature that. In a world where lots of solar technology providers seem to blend together and have little differentiation, it truly is necessary that you are able to dig deeper, get more resources and tools, and have more breadth of opportunity to learn and share with your core partners. Trina Solar is leaning in to the many requests for the Trina Hub, the new global partner portal dedicated to giving partner training courses and certifications, as well as a full asset library of pre-built and co-branded marketing resources for channel support. I'd like to encourage you to try Trina Hub for yourself. See how it helps grow your solar business and develop or enhance your digital marketing ecosystem. Learn more and sign up today at mysuncast.com forward slash Trina. What do we need really to get to this future? Um, I think the question here is where do we really stand on clarity in policy? Where do we need help? So the Inflation Reduction Act was a major piece of legislation. One of the things that Fluence has been working on for years was to expand the investment tax credit from just storage projects that were integrated with renewables to projects that were also standalone. That was really something that we've been arguing for probably for a decade. We did the very first project in the United States where storage was qualified for an investment tax credit. It was done at a wind farm in West Virginia in 2012, we added storage to a wind farm. We did a private letter ruling with the IRS. That became the case that actually opened up storage combination with a renewable to get and qualify for the investment tax credit. 
What we've been trying to do since 2012 is to say, hey, why does this have to be with a renewable? Because often when we would talk to utilities, power system operators, developers, they're saying, where do we really need firm, flexible power? It's generally not out in the desert. It's not in the mountain pass. It's really closer to a load center. You know, we need that to be somewhere where the grid operator, whoever that is, um, whether it's the utility, the system operator, whoever, can take the best advantage of that controllable power and use it to their best opportunity. And, and often that isn't in the exact same spot where the renewable resource is. But we were building these projects together because there was a 30% investment tax credit that made every sense in the world to take advantage of that. So we ended up with projects in the mountains of West Virginia in PJM instead of in Philadelphia or Pittsburgh where you need it. We end up with projects that are out in the desert in California instead of downtown Los Angeles. It's possible to permit an energy storage project in dense urban areas. It doesn't have any noise. It doesn't have any water use. It doesn't have any visible emissions. It can be very innocuous, either uh, containerized solutions, building-based solutions. We built fences around them. We've decorated them. In some places in Europe, we've put barns over the top of them so they blend in with the landscape. We can make this as innocuous as it needs to be. Uh, one of the permitting agencies that we talked to, they said, oh, this is kind of like a data center, but nobody ever needs to go there. We said, that's exactly how you should think about it. It's a data center without computers, essentially, right? Just the battery part of the data center. So it's, it's friendly to permitting into urban environments, but the policy side of this has not followed that. So we've really been focused on how do we allow standalone storage to get the same benefits that storage integrated with renewables gotten? That's one of the best things that came out of the Inflation Reduction Act. We now can take advantage of stranded grid infrastructure where we've retired power plants. There's a natural sense of putting another power source at that place because the grid exists, has the strength to take something there. But we haven't been able to put a renewable there because oftentimes these are in dense urban areas. These are in places where there's not enough land, there's not enough resource to put wind or solar or hydro or something else. We now can do this right, perfect combination. We're happy to do solar plus storage. We're happy to do wind plus storage. We'll continue to do those projects as they make sense. And there's lots of them that make lots of sense. There's a lot of companies that we're working with now that are doing those projects cited inside of community development zones and they're getting the bonus tax credit on being in a zone that used to have fossil fuels of some sort. Um, but there's also projects that will emerge now, and we're seeing that piece grow, where it's a standalone storage for power and capacity. And those are very good. We did this massive change. We opened up this massive opportunity in 2022, but we haven't seen all the rules get written yet. And so what happens is, as you go to these large projects, we make a deal. We say we have a domestic battery. We can supply it, build it here. We know that it'll qualify. It's going to get the 10%. You get into questions about how exactly is this going to be counted? What counts in the, to qualify to you to the minimum amount of domestic content? So today it's 40%. It'll eventually escalate. We believe with the supply chain that we're talking about, we can be well over 80%. It depends on the exact configuration of this. And we're trying to tune that to the right amount to say, hey, we're blending in domestic, non-domestic. We're trying to expand the, the supply chain because there's a limited amount of domestic production today of batteries. What's the right level? The question becomes, well, how do you count this thing? And so we need the clarity on those rules. And we've been working with American Clean Power and others to clarify those rules through the Treasury Department. We need, as an industry, to keep focused on, hey, let's not drop the ball at the five-yard line here. We passed this major sea change legislation. 
It has bipartisan support for creating American jobs, for strengthening the supply chain, strengthening the, the electricity grid in the United States. The only thing that's holding back, taking advantage of something that we've all agreed to do is the actual details of implementation so that we can finance around it with great certainty. Everyone believes it's possible to get this, but when it comes down to actually signing the agreements for financing, you get into these levels of uncertainty and benefits get discounted. And that's just kind of the, you know, sand in the gears, if you will. It's friction and inertia that's making it difficult to move these first projects forward and makes it difficult to scale to the level that the policy initiative really was intended to do. The, the goal of this is to unlock a whole new wave of investment, both on the manufacturing side and, and to, to go towards the clean power future that we're like, we'd like to see. Um, and this is just sand in the gears, right? What counts? What parts are we actually counting? Um, we have built our offer around what we believe is most certain to emerge. We're willing to stand behind it commercially, but we still see these are things that the further we can clarify these and the faster we can clarify these, it will unlock a much speedier future of rolling these projects out and getting the full benefit of them. And rolling them out and bringing them to scale is actually kind of a self-perpetuating uh, machine. We saw this a few years ago when we saw the first opportunities to sell storage broadly in California. Up to that point, Fluence's predecessor, um, you know, company we started out of AES doing energy storage, we had been doing storage projects every year. Put the first storage project online in 2008, we did in 2009, 2010, 2011. All of those predate the California program for procurement of energy storage. But when that California program came out and it set targets for the procurement of energy storage in the state, targets that today are laughably small, I would say, okay? They are laughably small now. They were immensely large at the time. It was a very forward-thinking position of California. And by doing it with a commitment to doing that procurement over successive rounds, what it said to the business community is, there's going to be procurement of this for several years at a scale that justifies your investing to create innovative solutions. And the intent of that California policy was to create an environment and an ecosystem where the cost would come down as people innovated as they did successive projects. What we found as we participated in that, participated in the development of the policy and we participated in implementation of some of the first projects, we actually won an award for the first energy storage project to ever get a, a power purchase agreement in the world, 100 megawatt facility in Long Beach, California. We found that the cost of those systems in the first round of what was intended to be a six-year procurement was already at the price level that they hoped to get to at the end of that program in six years. Just the certainty of knowing that there was going to be successive rounds of procurement that they were gonna procure at scale, not just a one-off test project, a pilot. Pilots are the worst thing in the world, I'll just tell you. Pilot is expected to crash. That's the way to think about a pilot, right? It's, it's a test pilot, you're expecting him to bail out. <laughs> it's not gonna be pretty, okay? But moving to a commercial scale program allowed the industry to mobilize in such a way that we already started hitting compressed price and cost targets that weren't expected to emerge for six or seven years. And when people went to do real transactional financeable deals at scale, we found the industry was actually already ready to do that at a level that nobody had anticipated up to that point. 
And that unlocked a whole series of things that have led into programs in other states, programs in other countries, um, doing things at a much bigger scale. I do remember when we signed the first gigawatt hour supply deal for energy storage, batteries. It seemed immense. At the time, nobody was talking about gigawatt hours of batteries. They were talking barely about, you know, tens of megawatt hours of batteries. And we signed a gigawatt hour deal, multi-year gigawatt hour supply deal. And we spent months talking to our board about what are we going to do with all these batteries when no projects emerge? That was the risk at the time. You know, if you go back a few years ago, how could anyone possibly use a gigawatt hour of batteries? Seems incredible, right? We managed to do that with some very strong partners on the battery supply side, some very good partners on the development side. And today we're in a state where single projects consume a gigawatt hour, right? And we've deployed 20 gigawatt hours, just us, just our company, 20 gigawatt hours. And we're looking at supply contracts now that are multiples of that, right? To be able to do this at scale. And that scale unlocks value. It allows us to drive price down with the volume of deployments that we do. It allows us to take experience into the design. The product that I showed you a few minutes ago with GridStack Pro, that effectively represents like a seventh generation of product. We're doing a major product revision every two or three years. And every time we do that, greater density, cost compression, better performance, more financeable, easier to facilitate and run. That's the kind of compounding benefit of scale. So that's what we have to do with this domestic content program. It's another opportunity staring us in the face to move to another level of scale, to get to another level of certainty, and to unlock the market in a way that drives costs down, allows us to do more products, and allows us to realize that vision of the future. So there's a couple things we need to do. Keep driving, how do we count the numbers and keep the pressure on the US Treasury Department to clarify these rules, take practical steps of how to think about what counts as domestic content and what doesn't. They've already produced a lot of documents on that. We've built our program around what we think is the most likely outcome of that. Let's drive it to certainty so people can have the certainty around financing products. We've associated an audit partner. So that's the other piece that's here is, Exactly how will people count those numbers? How will they look at it? When a developer goes and claims an investment tax credit, will they be able to support that? Will they get audited by the Treasury Department? How will they defend that? You know, a lot of questions of, are we going to give everybody our full cost build? Um, obviously, you can imagine that's a bit sensitive. Um, in some cases, there's interlocking partnerships in there of supply that, that people make it sensitive. What we've proposed and seems to be acceptable and, and consistent with what things have done in the past is, to look to a third party, somebody like a Deloitte, Touche, somebody like that, a big six kind of accounting firm that can come alongside us. We're already working closely with one of them to bring a partner. They can provide a certification that this meets the rules. What's the percentage? How do you count it? And they can stand ready to be alongside anyone that buys this domestic content offer in the case that there is any kind of audit or defense needed in the future. So again, it's about building the infrastructure to allow us to do not just the first opportunity, but the ongoing opportunity and build the momentum in the industry so that we move forward to the next level of scale. I wanna sit on this podium five years from now, six years from now, seven years from now, and say, ah, oh, remember when we thought it was ridiculous that we could produce batteries in the United States? Yeah. Do you remember when it was ridiculous thinking that domestic content ever come to the United States? It's only ridiculous if you don't take the first steps. That's what we found in this, okay? At every stage of energy storage, everything that we've worked on has been ridiculous.
It's been ridiculous. The idea that a battery could be put on the grid and substitute for a power plant was ridiculous. We did it in Indiana in 2008. All the people working with us, I think half thought we were ridiculous at the time we were doing it, even as they were building the future. We found that it could do it. The biggest complaint to that first battery that we put online, they started measuring it and said, hey, your battery's producing harmonics. And he said, oh my God, it really? Like batteries producing harmonics under the grid? We, we've created this technical problem in the grid by putting one megawatt, 250 kilowatt hour battery? Biggest grid-connected battery in the world in 2008, 250 kilowatt hour. Uh, we created this harmonic problem, dug into it, working with smart people at DNV, Kima, others looking at this and saying, we realized, no, that grid had a background harmonic and the battery was perfectly mimicking it and returning it in the same way. It was doing the exact thing that it was supposed to do. Its power electronics were that were that good. They were picking up an elevated harmonic. They were repeating it. So we had identified actually a problem in the grid that came about and people only noticed because we put storage in. We've seen that time and time and time again by bringing new technologies into the grid, really focusing on the key problem of managing fast, flexible power and bringing the technologies of the moment into that scheme at scale. We have advanced the grid over and over and over again. And we're in that process of building the grid of the future, the way you would have built it had you had all these technologies at your disposal when we built it in originally, 1900, 1920, 1950, 1960, every time we've done this. But we're in this generational change, and this is a big push towards ensuring we have the resources to do this at the scale we need in the market that's leading the pack and driving out of the greatest scale. So that's where we are. We need your help participating in this. We expect more rules to come out over the near-term period, we've already designed an offer that deals with the rules as we expect them to be right now. And we're out making commercial offers on domestic content that will stand behind. We expect other people to start doing that as well and to continue to push this forward and take full advantage of this change in legislation to drive energy storage to an even bigger height. Um, what does this do for the US and what does this do for our ambitions? It goes along with continuing to reduce carbon it's creating American jobs in manufacturing and bringing those jobs closer to the places where we demand those. We're shortening and limiting that uh, supply chain risk by shortening the time, bringing the supplies closer to where they need to be implemented. And we're effectively enhancing energy security in the US and in the surrounding countries because we can deploy this much more rapidly. We don't have the level of disruption that we have by having such a far flung supply chain. So it won't be exclusively a US supply chain. That's not what we're arguing for but it's about having this exist in multiple places in the world. You know, it, it don't think that the scale of ambition that we have for batteries is served by having them really only produced in one place in the world. So in addition to what we're doing in the United States, we have a partnership with a company called Northvolt that's doing production in Europe. Um, we have relationships that we've had for many years already in China. We will continue to work with those companies. And our vision really is to have production capabilities in Asia, production capabilities in Europe and production capabilities in the Americas and use those to load balance across the grid, deal with these disruptions of weather or terrorism or anything else, and make sure that we have the base that drives fast, consistent, high quality energy storage into the market in a way that can be bankable and financeable. So with that, I'll end my talk. I'm happy to take any questions about what we're doing or what we see as the obstacles or the, or the opportunities around domestic content in the United States.
So uh, I just want to ask uh, for the domestic uh, bonus. Uh, how are you going to, you know, uh, because it's only 10% kind of additional uh, credit. Yes. Uh, how are you going to compete with maybe the competitors using, you know, uh, still the sale producted, for example, in China? Mm -hmm. It could be cheaper. Like, do you have any calculation like this? So this 10% uh, increase could cover up, you know, the, the price difference. When yeah. you calculate also like the labor and uh, labor cost has been raised in the U.S. Yeah, so your question is, will a domestic offer be competitive with foreign supplied offer? Yeah, Effectively, yeah, right. exactly. Yeah, and we, the answer is yes, it will be. Um, and there's a couple things going on here. One, the 10% investment tax credit adder that um, can be awarded to the project owner is one piece of it. There's also a 45x credit on production um, of, of cells and modules in the United States. So that's also another form of bringing that cost down. What we're seeing right now is the combination of those things puts these in close alignment with one another. And so part of that 10% adder will go to the production costs and covering some additional costs. But we see that part of that 10% that can also go to the project owner and provide some benefits to them and eventually to the, to the customers and off-takers of that project. These two things will float up and down. I mean, we see changes every day in battery pricing depending on where you're sourcing it from. And that's true in the United States. It's also true for overseas modules. And so what we plan to do, we continue to do is, we will source from a number of companies, we will source from a number of locations, and we will provide opportunities to our customers to decide whether it's in their best interest to do this as a domestically sourced product and take the benefits of quicker project times, the investment tax credit benefit, and, and uh, other minimized risks, or whether it's better to source from a foreign battery supply and we can bring those under into the same system under the same controls, the same quality control. So from our standpoint, we're willing to bring both pieces of the supply chain. We see that it needs to be built up in the United States and in Europe anyway, you know, just to have a, a properly functioning system at scale. We don't think it makes sense to just have production in one part of the world. So we need to see that in other parts of the world. We do see that between the uh, 45X credits, other, other parts of the Inflation Reduction Act and the Investment Tax Credit, that these can be competitive. Okay, great. Thanks for the answer. Yeah. Just a second short uh, question is, how big is the capacity that you would plan for the U.S. cell manufacturing in yeah. 2025? Or do you have a planned capacity for the future? We, we do have a planned rollout of capacity that will increase over time. We're starting with multiple gigawatt hours is what I will say right now. I'm not, we're not releasing the exact number, but it's more than one, <laughs> many more times than one, um, and we plan to increase that over time. So some of that depends on how rapidly projects begin to adopt uh, domestic content, and I think some of this will, will depend also on how relative prices swing. Um, and so some of this is working with customers, working with their projects. We also have seen a number of utilities uh, and others that have seen the risks associated with some of the um, forced labor regulation, some of the disruption of supply chain who are saying, hey, even if the price is a little bit more, if it's in the similar ballpark, 
we think there's a risk reduction or we think the shortening of the time to implement is worth it. So there's a couple different value levers and it depends on the individual project. It depends on the individual situation. But that's where we work very closely with, with the developer or the owner to, to analyze what fits best. Thank you. The last question was also yes. a very short. All right. <laughs> uh, like, uh, because like I already heard some uh, Chinese manufacturers, they uh -huh. start to build the, like cooperate with the cell uh, production in the USA. Uh, but they have some problem like, you know, hiring the labor here because in China it's labor intensive. Yes. And here they kind of say they need to get the, the people from the whole town to, you know, make the factory running. Do you have similar uh, like a uh, problem that you have foreseen if you were build, you know, a cell uh, factory here, or it's not a problem for you for your company. I mean, we're we're seeing the possibility of producing what we're talking about and continue to scale that up. I think that's an input to all of this. Uh, generally, we're seeing inflation start to come down in the United States, and we're starting to see some moderation of a very tight employment situation. We're not looking at it as a critical threat. And again, we don't think everything moves to the United States. We think there's still a global a basis for a global supply chain. We will still continue to be uh, procuring with partners that produce in China, partners that produce in Europe, partners that produce in the United States. We just think this is an opportunity to build up a supply chain closer to the customer base. The policy initiatives with 45X and the ITC are funding what we largely need to have in the industry anyway. So we were, we were moving on this towards domestic production apart from these. What I would say is the Inflation Reduction Act sort of supercharged a move that probably needed to exist just for us to have a healthy industry. Thanks a lot. And thank thanks you. for the time. Yeah, <laughs> thank thank you. from everyone. Maybe I'll go over here. Hi, John. Hi. Uh, uh, thank you for your presentation. Uh, very helpful and very valuable. Uh, when we're talking about the greater clarity of domestic content, sounds like you and your friends at American Clean Power are really closer to it than many people in the room. Did they give you any sense to when that clarity will start to come? Or how do we find it? I, I mean, we all need to push for it. Sure. And it's valuable to anyone. But what should we expect? I, I think what we've seen is kind of a cascading series of announcements. Um, and at each stage, there's been a little bit of clarity and a little bit of clarity and then more discussion. Um, there's an expectation that over the next couple months, we'll see another round uh, of uh, rules and ideas coming out and clarifying. We are continuing to discuss and talk with the policymakers and the people that will be overseeing these programs. I think what we're hoping for is, hey, let's let's move this forward with some speed. You know, we've, we've had a reasonably lengthy period since the legislation was enacted. I think we're at the point now where uh, you know, it's time to start taking advantage of it and seeing the benefits of it. So that's what we're hoping uh, is that in this next period by March, hopefully we'll see an even greater level of clarity um, in what, what is added here and hopefully all the way to understanding kind of the formulas very firmly. I think that would be the next step that's very helpful. Any next step of clarity I think is helpful. People recognize there may be some evolution of this and they're willing to take steps knowing it won't be perfect out of the gate. But we need to know there's enough um, meet here that it's not going to radically shift in a way that's unexpected. As people start to make, you know, multi-year commitments to projects, they're doing the development work and they're expecting this to show up at a certain time frame. They need to know that that's going to follow generally what's expected. Is there any way that people in this room or these other companies, how can we help you get that message out to yeah. make it happen? Like, I, 
We're but, all looking for it. Yeah. How do we speak with one voice? Yeah. I, well, I, you know, I mentioned American Clean Power as an association. They've been doing quite a lot, and, and I think that's a good organization. If you want to get involved directly with that organization, I think that's one place. Um, in addition, you know, it's a sort of general grassroots. What, who are the congressmen and senators in your area? Are they paying any attention to this at all? Do they know you're, you're looking at building a project, a factory, or whatever in their area? Do they understand that this is a local issue? Show. Right. And I and I think as with anything, that was what the legislation was passed with that understanding of that intent. The more we can continue to educate that there are, you know, there's real investment, there's real economic activity that's waiting on this. You know, that's it's gonna unlock something. I think that's a very powerful message. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Over here. John, I first want to congratulate you. The first time we met was probably 10 years ago at one of the first Energy <laughs> Stores North America conferences, and you were just getting started and uh, at, at least getting started on kicking ass, right? And so <laughs> congratulations on all the success. Uh, Craig Lewis with the Clean Coalition, by the way. Thanks, Craig. I think one of the big opportunities one of the biggest opportunities for energy storage is increasing the capacity factor on transmission lines. Yes. And I don't really hear people talking about that. So I'm wondering if that's a particular target market that you've been thinking about um, because we got to get a lot of energy generation that's out in the middle of nowhere. Right. To utilize the transmission lines that are like 30% average capacity factor, right? And, but they're congested at peak times. Right. You got to jam energy through those at the time where they're only sitting at 15%, right? And get them up to 100. Right. So you need big, store, big energy storage out in the middle of nowhere for that. And then you need to be able to store that in your distribution grids to take down the peaks, right? When you're really close to load. Um, so just looking for your input in general and 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 then also are you is fluence looking to play obviously you're going to play at the big central generation storage mm -hmm. but are you also looking to play at the smaller uh chunks of energy storage on the distribution grid you know maybe 10 megawatt hour to 50 megawatt hour kind of sure. chunks typically yeah great question um and i didn't this presentation wasn't focused on that but actually um that was one of the probably one of the highlights of 2023 for us. Uh, uh, we won some fairly large projects in Europe that are focused on exactly that, helping the power grid transmission system overcome some of those bottlenecks. Transmission planning is very you know, complicated, long-term. It ends up with a lot of um, NIMBY issues because people don't want new lines running through their area. Um, and what you find is these congestion points are difficult to solve. Um, we proposed a few years ago using storage to solve those and release some of the, um, in some cases, we just have backup transmission capacity that's reserved against any kind of transmission problem, right? So it's a little bit of the same problem that we were solving in generation a few years ago. We were holding back low-cost power generators against some kind of an outage, we added storage to that and allowed those generators to produce at their peak and let the storage do the backup for spinning reserve, frequency regulation, and then increasingly for peaking. We're doing the same thing on the transmission system in Europe. So we're doing a number of large projects in Lithuania and Germany. Those will be the first of the large-scale projects in the world. There's some discussion in the United States and in other parts of the Americas about doing similar projects, but we think that's kind of the next wave, if you will, of, of energy storage. We've seen storage 
go into generation. We've seen it go into, you know, peak management and tie in with renewables. We've seen it on the customer side, on industrial and, and um, commercial scale, residential. We really think this is kind of the next wave is being in the wires part of the business. And it'll start, I think, at the transmission level because that's the most concentrated problem. And Europe is ahead. This is, uh, you know, one of the first areas in energy storage where Europe has actually really leaped ahead of other parts of the world and saying, hey, these central systems, very congested, this is a solution, we're going to move forward. And we think that's very positive. We'll, we'll see those as examples, similar to what we did in the United States years ago, where the United States and Chile actually were the leads in a lot of the generation-related storage initiatives, and Europe and Asia copied those same applications. Now we're seeing Europe take the lead, and we think we'll replicate that around the world there. So we have a solution already. It's a very high reliability solution aimed particularly at transmission. And then the complement to that in distribution, we will be involved in. There's not a lot of that going on today, but a replicable, high quality, reliable system that operates, whether it's 10 megawatt hours, 50 megawatt hours under a common control system that you can see visibility, you can see status, you can manage those assets through a digital platform. All of that is part of that vision that we've rolled out of thinking of storage probably existing in every part of the grid and then giving you a different set of tools for managing cost and reliability. Are, are yeah. you in a position at all to talk about the comparative economics? Transmission is getting more expensive. Yeah. And the most expensive part of transmission is operations and maintenance. It's not even the CapEx. You hear about right. those billion-dollar transmission lines. That's just the upfront CapEx, right? Nobody's talking about the 10 times more that more, more right. than that, that the OPEX is going to cost you over the lifetime of the transmission asset. Seems to me that the energy storage is going to be a far more cost-effective solution. And getting, those, getting the capacity factors of existing transmission a lot closer to 80 90%. Yeah. Um, can you talk about the yeah, economic? I mean, what I can say is these were uh, competitive solicitations that were offered against the traditional alternatives and storage was selected. And we've seen some of that in the United States with non-wires alternatives offers that have been highlighted and selected in some areas. I think there's always a little bit of a hesitancy to be the first, particularly when you're in the transmission zone, this high reliability focus, there's not a lot of room for, for problems. Um, but I think we've seen economically, those proposals have come up positive relative to doing just traditional transmission build out. That doesn't mean all transmission build out goes away. There's areas that we just don't have good connectivity to. There's a lot of areas where we're building a lot of resources that just didn't have anything before. We're going to have to build some physical infrastructure there. But I think in the core networks that exist where we're seeing congestion and we're seeing low utilization, like you're saying, you know, in, in some ways, the reason I originally got into doing things with energy storage is it seemed to me like it was very much like the the transformation we saw in communications where we had, you know, relatively low utilized lines and we had the IP revolution come in and allow us to use all of that infrastructure at a much higher level. Storage does that. It's not an exact analogy, but it does a lot of that and allowing us to take much more advantage of the embedded infrastructure. And so we essentially have a much more efficient electrical infrastructure, much more reliable, but also much more efficient electrical infrastructure, which just translates into overall a lower total cost. That's what we've seen everywhere storage has gone in. It has the net effect of reducing the cost. And whether that's on generation or on system costs or on um, capacity costs, I think 
that's the focus of it. That's the, the beauty of the technology, if you will. Hey, if you're still listening along, that means that you've reached the end of this episode, but there are more than 650 episodes in the back catalog of My Suncast, and I would love for you to dig into even more. If I've earned your attention, and this is your first trip around with us, thank you so much for sticking all the way around to the end. Again, uh, as your host, my job is to introduce you to the thought leaders, the thinkers that are on the front lines of the clean energy transition. We do it every week, twice a week. On Tuesdays, we do what we call tactical Tuesdays. They're practical guides to the energy transition through the lens of folks that are subject matter experts. I hope that you'll tune in again. I also hope that if you loved this, you'll take a moment and rate the show and Spotify or Apple Podcasts, wherever you are listening. It, it makes a difference because it helps others find the show, other smart people like you who are trying to figure out where they fit in this clean energy transition, where your role is or could be. So if you need help answering that question, please reach out to me. You can find out how to contact me at mysuncast.com. That's also where our back catalog is and where you'll find the show notes for this and every other episode, along with all the links to the research and social media that we pull up to prepare ourselves for each one of these interviews. Of course, this one, you'll be able to find the link to the video episode on YouTube if you are listening to this in audio format. I want to thank our sponsors who help make sure that you don't have to pay anything more than your attention. Those sponsors pay so you don't have to. Would you give them as well? Some of your attention, go to mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. You can learn how their products and services are bringing the clean energy transition to fruition and faster than it otherwise would be. I hope that you'll join us again next week as we dig in to another tactical, practical episode on Tuesday and a long-form interview like this one on Thursday. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.